I want to speak about this first um, initial part of practice as outlined on this little um, progress of insight. You can see that the first uh, topic is the purification of conduct. And this is essentially learning to keep the precepts. And, uh, you know, when I, when I speak about uh, the progress of insight, we're talking about uh, gaining knowledge, gaining, gaining the knowledge that's going to free the mind from suffering. And there is, there's this suffering that we all experience. And uh, I don't know if I asked you last night, but the kind of suffering I'm talking about is not the news that you read in the newspaper. It's the kind of suffering that we all experience in our own heart in mind. You know, when we feel lonely, when we feel lost, when we feel grief, when we feel depressed, anxious, frustrated, disappointed, uh, not able to get what we want, having to put up with people that we don't want, all kinds of impatience, aversion, anger, hatred maybe, uh, desire, unfulfilled desires, yearning, craving. Okay, so this is the kind of suffering I'm talking about. Now we all know that we all experience all of these things a lot. And they're so common we take them for granted like, oh, this is, this is just the way it is, right? But actually, no. This is the way it is, but only because we're not practicing mindfulness and we don't understand through insight how to be free of these kinds of suffering. So the, the worst kind of suffering or the most, the grossest form of suffering is when we're acting out these this suffering. So when we're angry, we're angry. We're speaking it out. We may be whatever demonstratively being angry. Or when we're impatient, we're just frothing and we're you know bothering someone that we're impatient with. Or when we're caught in desire, we may be pursuing uh, our object of desire either lawfully, legally, or not. We're, if we want it bad enough, we'll do whatever we want to get it. So when we're acting out any of these kinds of suffering, uh, this is the grossest form, and it hurts ourselves, and it hurts others. So this is called transgressive, transgressive defilements. And the way to get a handle on transgressive defilements is to practice the precepts. And the precepts are training the mind to be uh, aware of the intention before speaking and acting. So it's a mindfulness practice. Keeping the precepts is a mindfulness practice because we're using mindfulness to exercise restraint. And the restraint is we know it's going to cause harm. If I say this, it's going to cause harm. If I do this, it's going to cause harm, either to myself or to others. And so by practicing mindful awareness of the intention before speaking or acting, we can then undertake this training to refrain from Harming by killing, harming by stealing, harming by sexual misconduct, harming by not speaking truthfully or speaking carelessly, and harming by the use of intoxicants. Okay, so we know when we, when we look at the, the news in the day, what we see is a catalog of suffering. That's what the news is. It's a catalog of suffering. And you can see that, if, that, that people are just not keeping the precepts all over the world. And uh, in fact, it's even encouraged not to, allowed, and expected that you won't. 
But, you know, even though your society might expect you to uh, do these things or your, your neighborhood or whatever, you know, that's not going to lead you to suffering. Not, that's not going to lead you to happiness. It might be okay, socially even, you know, to, to, to become intoxicated, to, to act out this way sexually, or to, uh, you know, not, not speak the truth or whatever. It may be tolerated. You know, in fact, in our culture, uh, we, we are so used to deception in advertising and uh, deception in uh, government officials that uh, if they ever told the truth, we wouldn't believe them. No, we don't, we don't expect it. And in fact, in fact you know, we, we've come to accept it. And you've you got to think about if, if this is so pervasive and so pervasively approved in our culture, what is it doing to our mind? Our mind is conditioned to accept, to believe, to, to act on, and to allow, to encourage, to accept, even in ourself. So keeping the precepts is not easy. Even just keeping the precepts with the awareness of intention is not easy. It's very difficult. But it's a, it's a prerequisite, really, because to the extent that we don't, uh, then we have a lot of regret. We have a lot of disturbance inside. We have a lot of dissonance within our own mind about what we really want to do and what we know we should do. And uh, that dissonance is going to show up as soon as you start meditating, as soon as, you, as soon as you go into the solitude of your own mind and you start meditating, all that stuff shows up. So uh, in, in meditation, once we, once we start doing formal meditation, the, the thing that comes up most is a lot of personal history review. You know? We start reviewing all the things that we've done and said that have caused us and others pain. And you can't avoid it. It's definitely definitely going to come up. And uh, to the extent that you are still acting that way, you'll start to have some, a lot of doubt about practice. But if you've, you know, if you've cleaned up your act, and sometimes it takes a while, uh, if you've cleaned up your act and you've recognized the foolishness of what you've done, and you make a firm resolve not to act so foolishly in the future, then you can, then you can proceed and you can develop some mindfulness. Actually, in the book, in the Mahasi Sayadaw's book, he talks about the kind of morality that's necessary for uh, practicing mindfulness for the development of insight. And actually, even though we've all done bad things, we've all done, we've all done things that are not so skillful, Right, we've done things. We've said things, and you know, we we not a, not not proud of it. We can be ashamed of it, and we can feel really bad about it. You know, but let me just say, it's over. If you can make a firm resolve in your mind not to do that again, that's sufficient morality to practice. You're still going to have to live with the karmic consequences of what you did, of course, and that's going to bother you in practice. You know, that's true. But if you don't do it anymore. If you, if you really watch your, your behavior and your intentions, then that, that ongoing practice of mindful awareness and commitment to the precepts is going to support your stabilizing. You know? But uh, there's no way around it. No way around it. So this purification of conduct is the first, the foundation upon which we can develop the mind. But there is a lot of, uh, in that initial practicing of the precepts, there's a lot of reflection on what's the value of the precepts, what's the value of uh, the Dharma in your life, a lot of uh, 
aspiration towards faith that, that can be challenged by some of our memories of how we've misbehaved in the past, just as a kind of a fact. So the second is the purification of mind. Now, purification of mind means uh, that momentarily the mind is free of obsessing because the second gradient of uh, defilement is, if it's not transgressive, meaning we're acting it out, then we can be obsessed. Our mind can be filled with desire, anger, aversion, impatience. We're not expressing it, we're not acting it out, but we're still suffering because the mind is just flooded with. And you know how difficult it is to, you might be able to zip your lips or use some Dharma duct tape just to keep from saying it, but inside, man, you're just frothing, right? So you're suffering, but the suffering is your own silent suffering. That's not as that's not as karmically dangerous. That's not as karmically impactful as acting it out. Acting it out temporarily feels good. You get really angry and you just blurt it out and say, "There, I feel so much better." Actually, your karma is much worse. So it's better if you can put the dharma duct tape on and just kind of zip your lips and just like watch your mind. Watch how much your mind is suffering with this obsessing. <clears throat> Whether it's... <clears throat> and talking about uh, addiction. I know we weren't talking about addiction, but in speaking about addiction, <laughs> we are addicted to our mental habits. When we get obsessing like that, right? When we get obsessing like that, you can't stop. That's just like being addicted. We are obsessed with you know, self-rationalizing anger, and blaming, and uh, whatever. You, 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 you don't need me to tell you, you know. Okay. So, to purify the mind doesn't mean that you get rid of all that stuff. It means that you become aware of it and mindful of it. Because, I don't know if I explained it last night, but when we're angry, and when we're caught up in anger, obsessing about anger, it's like we're lost in it. We're lost in that anger. When we're thinking about why we should be angry and we're justifying it and rationalizing it, well, we know we're angry and we're just kind of feeding it with this thinking about it. But being mindfully aware of anger is a very different experience. Because now we recognize anger has arisen in the mind and there is an awareness of it. We're not caught in anger. So there's a big difference between being angry, or let's say, let's say being fearful, thinking about your fear, and being aware that fear has arisen. In all, in all three cases, fear is present. But our relationship to it is very different. One, we're embedded in it. Second, we're obsessing about it. And third, we're aware of it. What we're talking about now is the awareness of it. Because to purify the mind means to have a wholesome mental state for that moment. Awareness is always wholesome. Even if what you're aware of is unwholesome. So when we're aware of impatience, impatience is unwholesome, but the awareness is wholesome. When we're aware of Anger, 
fear, desire, craving, yearning, when we're aware of it, the object is unwholesome, but the awareness is wholesome. That is a moment of purity. The mind is pure for that moment because it is seeing clearly this is the way it is. So to, to stabilize in this ongoing awareness, you can hear, even as we just uh, spoke about, the, as a few of you spoke about your experiences in uh, the meditation, you can see how quickly the mind goes off into judgments and commentary and planning and all kinds of things fueled by these defilements. So it takes, it's quite a struggle actually to stabilize the awareness in an ongoing way, moment to moment to moment to moment, to recognize what these obsessing qualities of mind are. Now the reason is we have obsessed for so long and it's so habitual it's hard to recognize. You know, we're, we're just caught up in our own story so much. It's become, our obsessing, obsessing has become our personality. And we just take it for granted. This is who I am. This is how it is. We don't even think to question it. So getting the idea that you can be aware of these mental states, that's your whole personality almost, is kind of novel. And it takes, takes a, lot of, a lot of faith, it takes ongoing aspiration. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of reminding, and yet it's, it can be very frustrating. You have to put up with failing a lot. So you can see how challenging it is just to get a few moments of purity of mind and to string them together. Beginning to, uh, you know, it's very difficult to, as I put here, to escape the clutches of the habitual patterns of the mind, the habitual patterns of thought. Really difficult. But in, in addition to that, we start to notice ways of thinking that we're not usually familiar with. We start to see not only our personality, we see the shadow side of our personality, to use Western language. And we start to see all of the self-justifying, self-rationalizing, all kinds of stuff that is um, not very skillful. And all of the hindrances, desire, aversion, doubt, sloth and torpor, and restlessness. Restlessness is just thinking mind, thinking without being aware, is rampant. The hindrances are just rampant in the beginning. It's almost like there's more hindrances than there is awareness. Definitely more hindrances than awareness. But as you become aware of them, it's hard to be aware of them and feel gratified. Hey, it's good. I'm aware of all these hindrances. I'm doing really well. <laughs> but actually we are. The more you are aware of these defilements in your mind, the more you're aware of the obsessing, the better you're doing. Now what kind of courage does that take? Here it is, you know, you're going to go to a weekend retreat with Steve Armstrong in Vancouver. Oh boy, hey, I can look forward to that. Calm down, open up, feel a little spacious, feel love and tranquility. That'll be great. No, sorry. We're talking about defilements this weekend. <laughs> and so come prepared to deal with the defilements all day. Most people don't think of that when they're going to go on a retreat. When you think about meditating, we think about calming down rather than I'm going to expose all these torturous, obsessing states of mind. <laughs> right? Okay, that's why it's so hard. We, we have these wrong ideas about what meditation is. Hmm? So, 
But the, the primary factors of mind that are getting developed is intention, aspiration, energy, connecting, sustaining, and recognizing. These are really important. These are the factors of mind you want to keep noticing. Connect your attention, attending, connecting, sustaining, perception of recognizing, and seeing what happens to it. Really important, because these are the factors that lead to continuity of awareness. They're all the jhanic factors, if you will, the, the factors that lead to the collectedness of mind. And we do have to be able to put up with a tremendous amount of frustration, disappointment, self-judgment, low self-esteem, impatience, and just disbelief that this is the way to practice effectively. Anybody that can get over that hump, good. Okay, now we get into the second, <laughs> the third purification, which is purification of view. Number one is the knowledge of discerning mental and physical phenomena. Okay? This is, now, let me just say, up to this point, we're still just practicing bare mindfulness. We aren't anywhere close to Vipassana yet. We're just trying to collect a little bit of mind to get a little bit of samadhi or continuity of mindfulness okay so purification of view the knowledge of discerning mental and physical phenomena means or is experienced when we're able to recognize that something some experience is being known so the primary object is the rising and falling of the abdomen when we can clearly know, oh, here's the rising experience, pressure, as we said, pressure, tightness, expansion, something like that. And we also recognize the knowing of it. We recognize there's these two things happening. There's these sensations in the abdomen, and there's this knowing in the mind. Right? Really important. This is, this is like the foundation upon which the rest of the progress of insight happens is this clear distinction between what is being observed and this activity of observing, this knowing. This is awareness. This is mindfulness. The objects are going to change. There's going to be a rising, there's going to be a falling, there's going to be pain, there's going to be thoughts, there's going to be emotions, there's going to be all kinds of things. But what we're looking at and what we want to recognize is that there's a knowing of every one of them. And these are two different things. Objects don't know anything mind knows. Objects arise due to causes and conditions. Physical, mental, emotional, whatever. They don't know anything. It's this knowing that we're cultivating. This is the first purification of view. Knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena. Means that we clearly feel the nature of an object and we clearly recognize the nature of the mind. And the nature of the mind is to know to observe, to recognize. Objects that are being known, they don't know anything. They have their own nature. The, the sensations have their own nature. Thoughts have their own nature. Okay? So when we were talking about some of your experiences, when you feel heat, that heat doesn't know anything. There's heat in the body. You can feel it in different places at different times. The heat doesn't know anything. It's the mind that knows. Right? Why you have the heat? Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons for heat in the body. Or when you feel other sensations, unpleasant sensations in the body, 
aching, hardness, you know, in your knee, in your leg, in your back, in your arm. All kinds of things arise. They don't know anything. Hardness doesn't know anything. It's the mind that knows hardness. So really getting clear that in every moment there's something and there's the knowing of it. What we're cultivating here is the recognition of the knowing, of the awareness. What's, were you, what the, the object of the rising and falling of the abdomen or other predominant objects as I pointed to in the sitting meditation, they're going to be anything and everything in life. Everything. Yeah? So we don't want to get too fascinated by them. What we want to be particularly attentive to is the quality of the knowing. So to, to, to do that, to, to purify the mind enough so that we can recognize the impersonal nature of something being known. Something being known. It's not even your choice what that something is. It's not even your choice that it's being known. This is happening all the time. There's never a moment goes by that there isn't something being known. There's a lot of moments that go by that we're not aware of this happening. We're spaced out. We're lost in thoughts about the past, the future. We're fantasizing about tomorrow. We're doing, we're doing all kinds of things except stay present with recognizing something is being known. Something is being known. So we have to let go of a tremendous amount of planning, let go of a tremendous amount of self-judgment, let go of a tremendous amount of uh, personal history review, let go of continuing the personal narrative that's going on all the time. We just have to see that and just say, oh, well, personal history, being known. Memories, just being known. Emotions, just being known. Stories about the future, my plans for the future, futuring, just being known. Whatever it is, rather than investing myself in it, there's a stepping back and a recognizing of it. This is the main dynamic of awareness. Rather than investing in it, it steps back to take a look at it and recognize it. So when we do that with personal history and experiences of the body, we really start to uh, not disidentify with ourselves, but we start to step out of the story of my life into just the awareness of my life, which is a different story altogether. Or not a story, actually. So this understanding that in every moment something is being known is, is what is called a right view. Right view. Uh, and in the Buddha's teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, there are these three trainings. And right view is the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Because we live in delusion. We, li- we live with very deluded minds, very confused minds. And until we hear what the right view of this experience is, we stay deluded. And it is said that uh, when Sariputta was speaking with some monks, uh, and they'd heard this Buddha speaking about right view, the monks were asking Sariputta, what do you mean right view, right view? What do- How do we get this right view? And uh, Sariputta said, there are two elements necessary for you to get right view. First, you have to hear of it from somebody else. So please listen carefully. 
when you listen to Dharma talks, really, really listen carefully because they're offering you the right way of understanding. Even if it's so counterintuitive to your own experience, you still have to hear it. Then, after you've heard it, you have to develop wise attention. And what we're doing here in developing mindfulness is wise attention. Wise attention without right view, not going to get very far. You might calm down. That's about it. So, when we pay attention to the, the body, as, we, as I was leading you to discover, we pay attention to the breathing in and breathing out, rising and falling. We want to say, oh, my stomach, my muscles, my back, my elbow, these, you know, these things. But these are all concepts of what's going on in the body. Empirically speaking, what we actually experience is hardness, tightness, tension, throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, heat, coolness, tingling. Right? And in, in, in all that, there's no, there's no anatomy. We don't experience anatomy directly. We experience these elements, these material, physical elements. Hardness, softness. In the Buddha's language, they talk about them as earth, air, fire, and water, but that's just another conceptual overlay. So I prefer just the immediate experience of, what do you experience? And you know, we've lived with this body for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and still it's really hard to say what the nature of this experience is. Right? You're sitting in a chair. You're sitting in a chair. What do you feel? What is the experience of sitting? Oh, you say, oh, my back is like this, my butt is like that, my feet are like this. No butt, no back, no feet. What is it like? What is the experience of sitting in a ch- sitting like? Huh? So to use the language of direct empirical expression, it's like aching, hardness, vibrating, pulsing, tingling. Some, some might be light, cool, whatever. So this is, the, this is that first purification of view where we begin to understand the nature of the mind that knows and the nature of uh, the body which doesn't know anything. This practice of mindful awareness is what we call a phenomenological approach to awareness. It's phenomenal. It's, it's the phenomena that's observed. It's not theoretical. It's not conceptual. It's all based on what you actually experience, the phenomena that is experienced. It's like we are scientists of, the, of our life, scientists of our mind and body. We're just observing with this, I don't want to say cold dispassion, but kind of cool, just kind of like, what is actually going on here? Not what's the story, not what I think about it, not what I like or dislike about it, but what's actually going on? Because if you were a scientist in the lab, or if you were, you know, a survey, or you know, measuring some plot, it's not what you think about. It's not how you whether you like it or not. It's just what do you actually observe that's important. Same same with this practice. What you actually observe that's what's important. And how you understand it through having heard of right view is also important. Okay, so. That is the knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena. That gives us, that's the first right view. Really important, that one. Then we move on to the purification of overcoming doubt. And number two is the knowledge of discerning conditionality. Things arise as objects, moment after moment. 
There's something happening, moment after moment. There's never a moment goes by when there isn't something arising to be known. This object that arises, this experience that arises, arises due to causes and conditions. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's not a mistake. It's not magically, it doesn't magically appear. It arises because the right conditions have come about to give rise to that experience. How do we know? Well, in practice, what I will be asking you to notice, as I did earlier today, is to notice your intention before you move the body at all. So you sit and you're breathing. You breathe, breathing happens by itself due to its own causes and conditions. But anytime you want to move the body, you want to swallow, you want to blink your eyes, you want to look at the watch, you want to adjust your body to kind of get some relief, a little more comfortable, you shift your feet, whatever you do. That doesn't happen without an intention in the mind. If you didn't have any intention and follow through with it, you'd never move. But we're moving all the time, aren't we? We move, we move constantly. We're always shifting our posture and swallowing, looking at our watch and blinking and picking our nose and scratching our head. It's just, it's just constant. We don't even know it. We don't even know it. To begin to kind of see into the nature of this body and this mind's commentary, how the body and the mind talk to each other, I would ask you to notice your intention before any physical movement. And if you do, you will, you will notice two things. One is, the body that sits stills and you're paying attention to it really is painful. It is said that dukkha, dukkha dukkha, this is pain, pain in the body, is hidden in movement. It's because we keep moving. That's why we don't see the truth of dukkha. But the dukkha is in the body. This is the nature of the body. It's dukkha, meaning it's painful. It's unreliable. It's oppressive. These are the three qualities of three different kinds of dukkha. And we, we, we will avoid it. I mean, we love our bodies. We want our bodies to be healthy and happy and contented and just suffused with pleasure as much as possible. That's why we eat good food. That's why we go to good sunsets. That's why we look for good sex. That's why we do drugs. That's why we do alcohol. We do all kinds of things so that the body stays pleasant. Because otherwise, we're not happy. Now, when you sit, you go to a retreat, and they say, sit still, pay attention. What they mean is, See if you can recognize the nature of the body. See if you can really recognize it. Just for once, can you really open to and feel what the body really feels like? It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. You have to really want to really understand the nature of the body to do it. Because it's, it's not pleasant. I'm sorry. It's not. I mean, I, I don't have to apologize. It's just the way it is. <laughs> You know, I wish I could say it was other than that. When we try to pay attention to the intentions before moving, we're going to find a tremendous amount of discomfort in the body, for sure. Unbearable discomfort. All kinds of sensations. Stiffness, heat, pain, tingling, spasms, heaviness, aching, itching. There's a tremendous amount of itching. I mean, you just can't believe how itchy the body is if you stop moving. Really. 
I mean, it will drive you crazy. Story. Okay, I was in Burma at the, at the monastery uh, when I was at this stage of practice, you know, and it was during the hot season. Now, in the hot season in Burma, it is hot. It's like 100 degrees day and night. No relief. It's like dry heat. It's just, un- it's really, a, it's a good thing all you're doing is sitting still. At that time, at the first, the first hot season, I was still a layman, so I didn't have to wear robes. I just had on longi. So I was sitting in my room, and before every sitting, I would just go out of the room into the toilet where there's a little dipper, a dipper shower, and I would take off my longi, and I would just splash cold water on me, just, every, just cold water. I mean, cold water is probably 70 degrees. It was still cold. I mean, because it's 100 degrees out, but it was cooler. I, would go, I didn't even dry off. I just put the longi on, went, sat on my cushion, in two minutes, I was completely dry. And in two more minutes, I started to sweat. Do you know how painful it is to sweat? When a bead of sweat comes out of your skin, under the skin, onto the surface of the skin, it is like being jabbed with a needle. Every bead of sweat. I know. I watched it. I would feel as there it is, drop of water. <laughs> there it is, another one. <laughs> All over the body. And within five, ten minutes, the body's totally covered in sweat. It's, it's the worst torture you can imagine. Really, you can't, you can't imagine torturing somebody worse than that. That's the nature of the body. So, when you, when you have these kinds of experiences with full awareness... It, it makes your mind do some funny stuff. You start to imagine you're being tortured. Or if you ever have been tortured in any of your previous lives, it all comes into view. So there's a lot of... Um, recognizing how out of control this body is. I mean, we, we really think we're, we're in control of this body. But what you realize when you're when you sit still, is that the body is really not me, it's not mine, I can't do with it what I want. This is beginning to see the dukkha characteristic. We get that, right? It's also beginning to see the impermanent characteristic. Things just change. You know, you feel comfortable for a minute, then you feel uncomfortable, and then you have an intention to move, and then you move, and then you feel relief, and then the relief lasts for about a split second, and then you feel some other discomfort. It's like things are just... Changing all the time, and you're noticing it. So you're beginning to recognize the impermanence, the characteristic of anicca. You're beginning to recognize the characteristic of dukkha, for sure. And you're beginning to recognize that it's it's, it's really all out of control. This is the anatta, the, the not self characteristic. Still, it's still immature, really immature knowledge. But this is what we're beginning to recognize at number three the Vipassana knowledge of comprehension, where we start to become aware of the three universal characteristics. And this is the first of the rolling up the mat stages. Now, what I mean by rolling up the mat stage is you're doing your practice and it is so unbearable. It is so uncomfortable. The mind is so tormented because it's so unpleasant that you just want to roll up your mat and go home. And if you don't have a teacher, you probably will. 
you're still here. Okay. Well, that means <laughs> that it, it, it's, it's hard to get through these rolling up the mat stages because it's, it's not what we, first of all, it's not what we expect that we're going to have to find, we're going to have to deal with this kind of crap. You know, this kind of is really, but because we, if you're really resolved and you're really aspiring, you're really determined and you've talked to others who have gone through it, then you can feel courageous. You can feel like, okay, I'll put up with it. This is really, it's, it's not pleasant, but I'll put up with it. Because there's something beyond that. And you know, you know, because you see it in others. So I just want to forewarn you that there's a few stages, there's a few places on the path that you're going to want to roll up the mat and go home. And this is one of them. When you first start seeing, now I say seeing, that's, I mean directly observing the three characteristics. We can all think, I know things change. <laughs> well, is there anybody that knows, that doesn't think things change? We can think that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about experiencing it viscerally, empirically, to know it. Because then you, you can't fool yourself. You know exactly what's going on. Okay. So here we are, up to the third knowledge, the Vipassana knowledge of comprehension, first rolling up the mat stage. And it is here that we first begin to practice Vipassana. Because Vipassana is seeing these three characteristics. The rest of the journey of this whole progress or process of insight is refining our understanding of these three characteristics. But the first appearance of them is right here. After a lot of struggle just to get some mindfulness together, then we can begin to see the three characteristics. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.